If you enjoy this podcast, become an ongoing Patreon supporter. There you'll find regular giveaways, weekly updates, monthly AMA threads, and more. Sign up today at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Also be sure to visit the affiliates page for discounts to courses with Permaculture Women's Guild and Heather Jo Flores, as well as the Environment Celebration Institute and Dr. Elaine Ingham. You can also save on herbal remedies from Susquehanna Apothecary and some of the best hand tools around from Rebel Garden Tools. Those are at the permaculturepodcast.com slash affiliates. You'll find links to those and more in the show notes for this episode. This is the Permaculture Podcast. In this episode, David Bilbrey sits down with Melissa Peet to talk about her work in learning to trust one's inherent knowledge. As the first of a two-part conversation, she provides the background to her research and establishing trust in our personal understanding, that which we already know, and that which others might draw out of us through education or transformational experiences. In the second half of this interview out in mid-May, David and Melissa discuss more of her process and the methods for discovering and embracing our embodied knowledge. As David provides a good introduction to Melissa and his interest in her work, let's get started, and I'll join you again after. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm here today with Melissa Peet, who is the founder and executive director of the Generative Knowledge Institute and the former director of Integrative Learning and Knowledge Management Mm -hmm. at the Stephen M. Ross School of Business at the uh, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. And uh, met Melissa at Region 18 last year, and she conducted a workshop that was very engaging. And so I've been looking forward to having this conversation since then, Melissa. So Melissa creates tools and methods that help people and organizations discover the vast reservoir of purpose, strength, and intelligence they already possess that exists outside their conscious awareness. Several of these methods, generative knowledge dialogue, generative coaching, and integrative knowledge portfolio process are being used to develop integrative and lifelong learners, leaders, and change agents in a wide range of fields, disciplines, and professions. Now, this is a continuation of my series on transforming social and economic systems and relates to permaculture because this delves into the ecology of the human mind, body, and heart, and it's a deep psychology of human satisfaction and performance. So thank you for taking some time to sit down with me, Melissa. Well, it's good to be here. I actually like how you described how this relates to permaculture. That was really helpful and clarifying. So for starters, to give us a little bit of a feel for your origin story, could you share maybe a time you came to realize on a deeper level the work that you were called to do? Yes, I actually think that that was when I was doing my PhD research, I was actually studying how do people transform. And I was studying this group of graduate students who were in a curriculum for transformation, but they were not transforming, right? And I'll never forget the day that I had created my first kind of intervention with them. And I was doing some follow-up interviews to see, like, if there was any progression in their development. And so I had intentionally selected a group of learners that were highly resistant, (laughs) like a group of learners that were like, no, I don't want to be a change agent. I don't want to transform like that group. So basically, and then I sort of tried out my, you know, my new course on them or with them, not on them. And um, about four months into it, I did a series of post interviews and their responses were mind blowingly completely different 
than where they were at the pre-interview. And I'll never forget, I was just sitting there and like the hair on my neck was standing on end, like after the third person. And I remember my, the sensation of my brain melting. I felt like my brain was melting <laughs> because I have, you know, did a thorough review of all the adult development literature and, you know, to make a good academic. And, you know, I had a thorough understanding of adult psychology and even college student psychology and nothing, nowhere, anywhere, anything I had ever read could describe or explain or reflect the transformation I was seeing. And so that was the day I was like, something has happened here that I do not know and do not comprehend, and nothing in psychology can explain it to me. That was the, the beginning of the beginning, and really exciting, even though it was mind-blowing. So let's go back a little bit further. What, what got you into this you know, field of study to begin with? Well, what got me into it was, as a graduate student earlier, I was a single mom working my way through school, and I needed a job to pay the tuition and get health care for my son and I. And I ended up being a, a graduate student instructor in this course for undergraduates that was fulfilled what's called the mandatory race ethnicity requirement at U of M. And so that meant I was supposed to teach overwhelmingly a lot of really rich, white, privileged kids about oppression and privilege and inequality and all that kind of stuff. So I would get entire fraternities enrolling in my section so they could come and teach me the man's perspective. From that, I learned, because it's incredible to sit in front of, in the lecture, hundreds, but then in the discussion, you know, a group of very hostile young men who are hostile at the idea of what I'm actually teaching, not actually the content itself, but the idea of the content. I would say well, I had like a classroom full of Donald Trump juniors. You know, I was sort of like, my intuition told me that in order to teach that course, I needed to make their reactions their resistance, the actual center of analysis, the center of the course. And so that's what I did. So the whole course was a study of their own reactions to the material. And as a result of that, it just took all of the strength out of their resistance. And I began to understand that literally the form of their resistance sort of reflected the very content of the course itself. So it was just like this magical thing. And at the end of the class, I'd have all these fraternity bros telling me, going on and on about how this course transformed their lives and how they're completely different people. And they were unbelievably grateful. And I won this big fat teaching award and all this kind of stuff. But it was because I put not just students, but students' own reaction and their negative reaction to the material at the center. And I made it their business to understand it. So that caused this transformation. And then later on, it was like eight or 10 years later when I was getting my PhD, I wanted to understand, well, I saw the transformation, but I couldn't explain it. I didn't know what it was made of. And, then, and that was actually a different kind of transformation. But so, yeah, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what got me into it. What did you study for your undergrad? Uh, Japanese language and literature. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then your PhD, your, your graduate school degree was in what? Educate, higher education. Higher education. Yeah. So this has really morphed into something very fascinating. Okay. Was it's, your PhD focused on this then? My PhD was focused on, yeah, what do students from different backgrounds and different social identities, what do they need in terms of a learning environment in order to 
sort of step into what I call their historical subjectivity, their sense of themselves as both the recipients of history and the co-creators of history. And so in the context of that, you realize that this is something that's actually really core for everybody? Yep, (laughs) absolutely. What I recognized was that because the students were having transformative moments of learning all the time, but when I would ask them what they were learning, they were completely fragmented. And what I noticed and what I began to notice and, and was because they were having most of their most important experiences were just below the surface of awareness and they couldn't articulate them in the usual way. So I began because I was really sick and I was having a lot of reactions to their fragmentation. I was having a lot of physical reactions to it, like negative physical reactions. So it was actually out of my own need, in some ways to save my own life, because I had an illness that was killing me, that when I began to talk to them and get them to speak in this much deeper embodied way, they not only became less fragmented, but the inflammation and the pain and the illness in my body began to disappear. So I just realized that their fragmentation and my illness was born of the same ground. They were just manifesting differently in different degrees. Does that make any sense? That's fascinating. Yeah, it makes total sense. So the course you had with the fraternity guys, <laughs> um, so you noticed something was happening there. When were you able to start understanding and sort of parsing out what exactly was happening and then turning it into this generative model? I was uh, teaching that course as a master's degree student. And then I actually didn't start studying that process of transformation until about uh, five or six years later, maybe Mm -hmm. seven years later, while I was a PhD student also at Michigan. And then the first year that I began to study how, formally study how students change and the, you know, wanting to know the internal mechanisms. That first year, Again, I saw students like having these transformations and I could produce evidence of their transformations. But when I would talk to them and say, well, how is it going? What are you learning? Like, what's it like to be like going from this person that isn't so sure about what they're doing to this person that like their field instructors, people in the field were saying, oh, my God, they're amazing. They're creating all this change. And the students would say, no, man, I, I hate this. I'm not learning anything and I'm not a change agent. So it was actually walking into that disconnection, the disconnection between literally the empirical evidence and the first in the subjective experience. That's where I began to say, well, what's happening here that these students are so fragmented, even though everybody around them, including all the people that want to hire them, say that they're absolutely amazing. That was to see it so explicitly, that fragmentation was also a life-changing experience for me. Because again, there was nothing written down in any kind of literature that could explain this phenomenon. And as far as I know, there still isn't. I mean, they weren't mentally ill. They were having a fragmented learning experience. Welcome to America. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and also, I don't know where, like I've done my methods and taught my workshops all over the world, and I've yet to be in a place where people have access to their hidden, tacit, and embodied knowledge. I mean, I, there's differences across culture, but I really come to believe that I think it's just part of, whether it's the astonishment or the embarrassment of being human, that we have 
these sort of conscious ideas and identities and beliefs about ourselves or even about the world. And then we have a body of knowledge, a body of experience that often contradicts our conscious beliefs and we don't know those contradictions. And so we walk around kind of fragmented. So yes, and of course we live in these crazy, insane Trumpian times, which I think our fragmentation is now culture wide. But even when I go to less fragmented cultures, that disconnection between what a person consciously believes or thinks that they know and then what their body of experience says is true are not the same thing. Seems to me that that's a very critical and key piece of education to be able to access that tacit knowledge. Yet, like you say, many people, or maybe most people, don't have that capacity. I think you just said something that's really important, which is, You said the education system should, but people don't have the capacity. I would say the people don't have the capacity because they've never had the opportunity to actually develop it. Because once I've given people the opportunity, I've never met any human being. And this includes like previous students at the business school who would identify themselves as engineers slash having Asperger's. Mm -hmm. They would be like, Dr. Pete, uh, you know, like, According to my Myers-Briggs profile, I'm not able to blah, 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 blah. And I would like, you're fine. You're going to be fine. So I think it's the education system because the education system is entirely based on what I call disembodied knowledge. And that is, you know, all these vague generalizations that are not connected to the earth, to the ground, to bodies or to context. And that's sort of what we traffic in. And I think that we're in the middle of, and I think this is how it's related to permaculture, is that we're in the middle of an embodied revolution. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, where our job is to connect head, heart, hands, feet, ground, and that once we're on the ground is the entire relational field. And that our whole knowledge system works in the other direction to disconnect us from the ground, to disconnect us from context, and to disconnect us from the literal truth of the matter that we're experiencing in our 220 billion neural networks of our bodies. It's amazing because it's the sort of result or fruit of not decades, but centuries of ingrained teaching and training of our minds and bodies from religious Mm -hmm. spirituality to sociology. And then especially since the what 1700s economics, and it's deeply ingrained in all of these different systems. And then, you know, don't even get me started on psychology, although there's right. some things happening right. in that realm here, you know, in the, the recent few decades. But yeah, we're really disconnected. And that's one of the key things that permaculture does in a permaculture design course is it really deeply it grounds you and gives you a sense of place and connection with, with all of the different interactions in an ecosystem, which involves your food forest, but it also involves your social relationships and how you make a living and economics, which is part of what happened with me is it's like, wow, this permaculture thing is amazing. I love this idea. It's like, how do you apply these ideas to social and economic systems and totally applies. And then over the past several years, I found several people that not only already thought of this, but have been working on it for decades, several of which were at the Region 18 yeah. last year, you know, like Hunter Levins and several other people there. And so it's a really exciting time to be alive. And we have our work cut out for us at the same time. So yeah. I'm really interested in what you said about how when the students engaged in embodied communication versus disembodied, it affected your physical 
health and feeling. Do you have any more insight on what was going on there? Oh, yeah. I mean, now I do. So let me, you know, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, I say disembodied embodied. Let me give an example. So when we ask our kids worldwide, pretty much. So what did you learn at school today? The most natural response that children worldwide have is nothing. And that's because the question, what did you learn at school today, is what I call a disembodied question. In fact, they did learn something at school today. They had a lot of experiences at school today. But the question itself, because learning, the word learning, is an abstraction. When we ask somebody that question, they were immediately flipping them into abstraction where there's literally nothing there. Because the actual experience of learning requires sensation and embodiment. So, for example, the experience of learning usually happens through frustration, insight, kind of like getting hooked, right? And so instead of asking people, well, what did you learn at school today? And they say nothing because they've been abstracted by the question. You can ask, well, tell me about a moment at school today where you felt really engaged or alive in whatever you were doing. Or tell me about a moment at school today where you were really frustrated or you were really interested. So first of all, the embodied part is tell me about a moment. So it's time stamped, place stamped. And then it's attached to some kind of sensation that they can grab a hold of with their senses. Interested, engaged, frustrated. So what happened is like way back when I was talking to the students, the topic of the conversation was moments of what we call critical incidences back then, challenges or frustration they were having in their field experiences. And so sometimes they would say, oh, you know, my supervisor, she's such a bitch, la la la, she's really racist. But they wouldn't actually give any, and I'm not bringing my A game. So that sounds like a very compelling intro to a story. But actually, I would recognize I'd have no idea what he was talking about. But the students, and we all are kind of habitually used to talking at that level, right? We can You know, we all know what it's like to run into someone who's racist. We know the feeling of what it's like to engage with somebody who would we call bitchy. And we all know what it's like to not bring our A game. So because we can all sort of empathically relate to those sentences, we think we already know what that person is saying. Are you following me? Yes. And so we actually have no idea what he's saying. So I'd have to say, okay. So tell me what it looks like to bring your A game. And then he would begin to really give an example of what that means. And just that shift from sort of talking on the surface of the thing to now giving the rich example, like I bring my A game. And he tells this incredible story of working for a boys and girls club. And he's like, I was working for this boys and girls club and the whole approach was deficit based. You know, we matched them with mentors, these poor kids, but We only matched them with mentors because they were poor and they didn't have things. But I wanted to know, like, what would it look like if we created a program that was strength-based, that was based on the assumption these kids had something to give back? And so then I created this whole program where we have these kids and we pair them with their mentors and they go out and they bring meals and they hang out with and homebound people. So then he told this story about what it means to bring his A-game. And it had this richness and aliveness and it had all these details when he got into the details that's when the inflammation in my body would start to recede but one story wasn't enough he'd have to tell three in a row and actually three embodied detailed stories in a row and then what would happen is as i was listening i would start to have all these words and phrases come to mind and i would just write them down and then when he was done talking i'd look down 
And the things that I wrote down happened to be these sort of core strengths, these core capacities that came through his stories, but were never spoken. But here's the thing. I wasn't the only one who heard them. There were 10 other people in the room and they all heard them too. So then we have to ask ourselves, and this is the really important part for science. How can 10 or 12 people sitting in a room who don't really know each other hear the same thing that was never spoken? Let's really think it. Well, that's because the thing that we all heard, it wasn't, and I say here, it was more synesthetic. It was both, we heard it and we sensed it. We could feel the resonance of it in our bodies. The only way we could hear, sense, feel that was if whatever it is empirically exists. And if it empirically exists and it gives us all this aliveness and all this resonance and all this, like, as we're listening, we're like, you know, we feel alive just listening. Then we have this, like, what is that thing that we're all sensing, feeling, and identifying at the same time? So as I began to ask that question, that's when all, I mean, psychology had already completely failed me. So I was now, now I had to turn to nature. And that's when I began to understand that just thinking about and applying the principles of nature to human beings, I was like, well, all of nature is based on the principles of self-organizing systems. All self-organized systems have organizing parameters, right? And that aliveness is part of their wholeness that's coming through, part of their self-organizing system. It's how they're self-organized by nature, not by culture or by intention or by will. The reason that it started healing my body was because the wholeness that was coming through their stories, I'd say it's pre-formative to their, you know, it's, it's just, I call it part of their incarnation code. It's just when their wholeness comes through, my own wholeness, my healing, my natural healing mechanisms in my body naturally responded. It's a resonance from their wholeness resonated with mine. And so I don't know if that's in too much detail, if that's what you wanted, but that's, I just began to follow the sensations of aliveness in my body and the sensation of aliveness that I was seeing in the students and the empirical data that I took it as empirical data, that there's actual data here. And I began to just follow the authority of that data, like a dog on a bone. And that's where it led me. And in order to do that, what's the funny part, I don't know if this will come across as funny, but is here I am at the largest research one university in the world where we worship one God and one God only at the University of Michigan. And that is the God of logical positivism, right? Mm -hmm. That's the God of numbers and of abstractions. And what I was doing in that space with them was redefining data in a totally different way. I was calling our physical grounded sensations. I took that as absolutely factual, scientific, empirical data. Because how else could a whole bunch of people who don't know each other begin to have the same response at the same time to the same information that was never spoken? So that was an early experience. How has that process been refined over time as you've just witnessed it? Well, I started with this like insight, wait a minute, why are we all having the same experience of wholeness and of aliveness at the same time, or why are we all producing the same words to go along with that thing that was never said? Okay, so that means there's a there there. And then I began to read David Bohm's book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order, or I'd read Rupert Sheldrake. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know him. Yes, I do. And then, because basically those two guys, and I know that these are old works, but they're pointing out that nature is inherently sort of self-organizing and purposeful, 
And so then I began to ask, well, what else is nature self-organizing in us? And then what are the questions I can ask? So then I began to actually, the more I asked those questions, the more I began to basically develop a methodology to reveal these different dimensions of, so far I've uncovered five dimensions of wholeness. That's what I call mm-hmm. it. So basically I would, I would just have like, oh, I wonder what else, like if it does this, if Jonathan tells me three stories about really challenging experiences he overcame and from those stories, a bunch of strangers who don't know Jonathan can discern what I now call core capacities that he's not aware of. I wonder what else is there. And then slowly but surely over the next four years, these dimensions would sort of begin to come through. And it was just the first two dimensions, what I call our purpose and motivating forces. That's one. And the other one is I call our core capacities. The discovery of those two dimensions alone healed my lupus. Not just the discovery of them, but I would say the indwelling in those. I was just running around, literally. I'd interview anybody and everybody Mm -hmm. because I kept wanting to like test my hypothesis, test my theories and like refine the methodology. And it just happens that doing that is what healed me. So what kind of a time frame was it from the first time you felt that to when you were completely healed? Um, probably two and a half years. You know, what's interesting about this too is I'm thinking about times in the past when I've seen this happen. And one of the contexts that I've seen it happen, everyone's heard of the power of the testimony, right? And it's used in, yep. in church settings. It's used in the advertising. You know, there's a lot of different settings. But in the context of church settings, I've seen where people are telling these stories that are definitely embodied and other people are getting healed. And it's the dynamic of, I mean, it is, it is sort of miraculous, but at the same time, it's sort of part of the science of the human being. And so you're uncovering something that's really, really pivotal. We need a, a scientific method that can cohere to that and explain that. And right now, the use and misuse of the current scientific method doesn't make that knowledge available to us. And so, you know, it seems superstitious or it seems spooky or I've had like presidents of universities freak out and call me a witch. I love that part. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing you weren't doing this two or 300 years ago. (laughs) I had one guy say, a provost tell me once, if this was 100 years ago, we would have burned you at the stake by now. And I was like, oh my God. 400 years ago, dude? Like, he's like, what kind so, of magic is this? I'm like, it's not magic, it's method. And it's a method based on empirical data and feedback. So I think what's so fascinating is that the way I was able to teach this, for example, in a business school, where they're all about big data and abstracted data and, you know, you got data bros, is that I would say the human body is 220 billion neural networks of nothing but pure intelligence. And that intelligence is always reading, it's always emitting, it's always doing something. And here's a question, what the hell is it doing? Don't we want to know? What if we were to consider that these 220 billion neural networks are organized and intelligent in a way, and they're trying to tell us something? So then I would give them a paradigm to think about the data that's available, the qualitative but yet no less empirical data available in a self-organizing system, whether it's the human body or whether it's an organization or whether it's a community. And what is it like to unlock that data so that we can see what does it look like when that organism, that being, that community is self-organized in its highest and best form. And what I've come to realize in myself, 100% included, 
Until I discovered my method, I had no idea who I was. I had stories about myself that didn't cohere to my own body of knowledge. The story about myself was constructed from the culture because it's conscious. In my body of knowledge, it's constructed from my experience in the culture. And it's totally different. So here's a good example of this disconnection. So in business schools in the United States, at least this was true a couple of years ago, somewhere between a whopping two to 5% of the participants in all entrepreneurship programs are women. So a couple of years ago, I was in a room with about 100 MBA women at Michigan. Only two or three of them in that group identified as entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. But they're all MBAs. They're all quite accomplished. And I first asked them the question, the disembodied question is like, okay, pair up and talk about whatever your definition of what entrepreneurship or what an entrepreneur is. And they did, they paired up and they whispered and I'm like, okay. I was like, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to tell your partner a story, an experience of a time when you worked with an organization or a group or something and you saw a gap or a need and you created something completely new that never existed before to fulfill that gap or that need. And whatever it is that you created generated value. Boom, the room exploded. They could not stop talking. And so here I have a group of women, only 2% identify as entrepreneurs, but every single one of them was on fire with a story of entrepreneurship. And that's what I mean. And so then I went back and said, like, okay, so you just all told a story of entrepreneurship. That's the primary movement of entrepreneurs is that you see a need or a gap and you create something that never existed before to fill that need or gap. And I was like, so here you all, you're obviously like, I could not get them to stop talking, right? They were, they were like, oh, you know, they're buzzing, you know, like, well, you got to stop to guess. And I asked them, so why don't you identify if you all have this entrepreneurial move in it and you're all like now, it feels like, a 20,000 watt Christmas bulb now in here in the room after you told these stories, why don't you think of yourselves as entrepreneurs? And there's this long silence. And finally, one of them was brave enough to say, well, I think our vision of what an entrepreneur is, is a white dude with venture capitalist funding in Silicon Valley. And they have these formal definitions of entrepreneurs. They have these cultural definitions of entrepreneurs. And then they have the experience of entrepreneurship that they never in their life recognized until that moment. Because nobody ever asked them an embodied question about it. Just such a radical difference in <laughs> experience. So uh, talk a little bit more about how it helped you to realize who you were. Well, <laughs> okay. So one of the beliefs that I had about myself was that I wasn't creative. And, you know, it's like I have some strength. I'm really good with data or I'm really whatever, whatever, you know, whatever, I, you know, I can, I can list four things or something. Mm-hmm. And then one day somebody did, one of my former students, my process on me, you know, just one of these, like what I call brief core capacities interview. And she was going on and on in the feedback. And actually it wasn't just her. It was like six of my former students. They were like, Hey, we want to come and interview you. We want to know what that's like. And I was like, okay. And they kept going on and on and on about how creative I was. And I was like, I had that moment that I'd seen in my students many, many times before that. And by students, I mean like at the business school, I loved having students that were everywhere from 19 years old on up to like 60. This moment of like going, oh my God, I believed this thing to be so true about me. I took it as fact. When all it was is some, it wasn't fact at all. It was just literally some cultural artifact 
that I had in my head based on the fact that my closest friends are actually material artists, like, you know, the painter sculptor kinds. And so I had this lazy, narrow definition of what it means to be an artist, what it means to be creative. And based upon that, I deemed myself as not creative. And it was amazing how much just taking in that feedback changed my perception, not only of what I was capable of, but what I should be doing in the world. Like I would not have left U of M and started my own institute if I didn't know that I was creative. I laughed telling that student because people are like, duh, you create entire systems. You know what I mean? You create whole new methods, you know? I mean, that's just one way. And the other thing that I've noticed is that everybody that I've ever done my process with in any kind of in-depth way has some kind of conscious identity part of themselves that is what I call a reversal of their embodied truth. So for example, years ago, I was interviewing this woman who at the ripe age of 26 had won like this leadership and innovation award for the whole state of Michigan. I think her organization won nonprofit of the year in the state of Michigan. So I'm interviewing this star at 26. And one of the questions I ask in one part of the interview is, I would say, so, you know, if you had a magic wand, it could change anything about yourself. Turns out that one of her superpowers, it's coming through, just screaming through the interview, is that she's not sane, but it's just clear, is that this young woman can go into any system, no matter how screwed up it is, because she launched her nonprofit in the context of a much larger, much more dysfunctional system. And she can get the oldest, most resistant curmudgeons on her side. She can get people who haven't changed anything they've done in 40 years to just get on board and just immediately start doing something different. It's a superpower. Mm-hmm. So when I ask her, so if there's one thing that you wish you could change about yourself, what would it be? And she's like, oh, easy. I suck at change. I am the worst at change. And she goes on and on. And I'm just like, wow. And that's when I realized that I had this flash. It's taken me years to unpack this one, but I had this flash in that moment because then I began to see it like everywhere for a while is that that which we hate about ourselves is actually inextricably linked to our purpose. And that if we unpack whatever that thing is, that self-judgment, what we will find, like for instance, you know, I don't beat myself up because I never won a gold medal in swimming because I don't care. You know, there's an infinite number of things that we could beat up about ourselves, but we're always kind of hanging around on the same two or three. And that's because it's part of our, what I call now, that's part of our transformational force. One of the reasons her name was Kat, one of the reasons Kat was so good at change is because at the conscious level, she thought she sucked at change. And so she was always like working the details. I mean, she had so many tricks and so many incredibly creative tactics for getting people on board. And it was because she was so hyper-conscious and worried about not getting people on board. And she never saw that movement in herself. So would it be better for her not to know that she was good at it? (laughs) No, no, no. Because actually, that's a really good question. Because what I realized is that this part of our wholeness, I call our transformational force. Once people understand how their transformational force is related to their purpose, they start spending a lot less time in anxiety, in depression, and in fretting, and in fear. They just learn to trust themselves more and trust their own inner movements more and be more curious about them and less judgmental. 
It's like, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing. Okay, well this right here, this is sort of the oscillation that I engage in with myself right before I come up with the solution. So they don't have to go into a self-hatred hole about it. They can just wade through the discomfort and trust that that discomfort has a purpose to it. It's part of their creative tension. What a difference that is because if you're feeling that confidence because you know that that is a, a strength that you have, then that enables you to, instead of constricting, contracting, it enables you to relax, which opens up a lot more capacity in your brain, <laughs> in yes. your body to really utilize your gifts. Yes, exactly. And, you know, constriction too often leads to collapse. And what I know is in myself and what the people, when people collapse, my belief is that nine times out of 10, it's right inside of what I call that generative turn. Right before they make that turn is where they collapse. And that's when you get into what I call a degenerative cycle, where, you know, it's like, procrastination, avoidance, self-loathing, hatred, addiction, you know what I mean? Just go, because they don't know what their own internal moves are and they don't know how to trust them. And to me, this is not psychological at all. I refuse to engage with psychology. What I say is that I'm, when I quote, teach people to read whatever this is, I'm teaching them to read how nature has organized them. And that I am this 220 billion neural networks. You are these, but you didn't make you. You know, you're the steward of whatever that is, whatever that thing is that has your name on it, you know, great. And so we can step back and go, you know, it's kind of like to just loosen up on the grip on ourselves. Is it intuition? Is it opening people up or teaching people to hear more clearly their intuition? Is it, the, what is it, the, morph the morphic fields? What is it, Rupert Sheldrake? Yeah. So actually, I would say that that's a really good question. Whatever it means to trust oneself, if that's instinct, is that intuition, I think that those words are very poor markers for whatever it is. It's an embodied knowing that has a sensation of aliveness that goes along with it. The fact that we don't have good language for what it is just sort of shows how sort of lost it is in our culture. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We have these like faint, toothless words, like intuition. <laughs> I don't know about you, but is intuition feels or sounds like, or I, how I learned it is it's this sort of like voice that may or may not be in my body. I don't know where it is. You know what I mean? And instinct. Okay. Well, instinct. Okay. That, that's definitely in my body. Right. You know, it's, it's even when people ask, well, when I'm in, like, I hope you can come to training because it's so much fun. Because people are like, well, is it a feeling? Is it a sensation? Is it a hearing? And I'm like, oh, actually, once you get embodied, this is the other thing that's completely natural. I believe it's completely natural for us to become synesthetic. We've just never been taught that it's completely natural. And that's when the, your senses mix, right? So we see, hear, feel something all at the same time. Are there cultures that you've studied in the past that have more of a connection with that? Yeah, I mean, so for instance, this is where the Japanese language and literature comes in. Some of the best sort of academic researchers on tacit knowledge were Japanese, because Japanese culture is deeply tacit. And what people have told me is that, oh, this is definitely the case. When I do trainings, I've worked with the Black Male Initiative at the University of Central Oklahoma, and I've worked with the Hispanic Student Success Initiative there. And one of the things that absolutely blew me away when I was working with the Black Male Initiative 
and I was in a room with like, it was myself and like 33 young African-American men is that the incredible trust that they had in their embodied experience already, some of them blew me away, just blew me away. And how much I didn't have to struggle with them to legitimize it. It was just like, yeah, okay, of course, got it, you know? Where did they get that from? Well, you asked about different cultural differences. So I can't speak for that culture, but I think that one of the things that, you know, most people would say is that Northern white European culture has been the most disembodied. Where, like, where did Cartesian dualism come from, right? And what is Cartesian dualism? It's decapitation. We're literally splitting our heads off from our bodies. Well, and actually, one thing that I have experienced in Oklahoma is the power not only of the church, but also the black church in Oklahoma. And I don't know if you've ever had the joys of attending, right? That's a deeply embodied experience. So I think that there are cultural differences. And I know that for me, a cultural thing that I came to this experience with, I don't think that I would have been able to discover my experience or discover my method and trust my experience had I not been a first-generation college student. I came from smart people, but not educated people. And one of the things that I sort of gained in my family was I had this crazy father who just believed you could figure anything out, figure it out, figure it out, you know? And in order to just like figure it out, you always had to, there was this way you had to kind of like just dig in and trust yourself. And so I think that actually coming from that background, I didn't have any, you know, it also was the reason why I flunked out of my undergraduate like five times before I figured it out. That's what helped me pay attention to the physical sensations in my body and to trust them to lead me someplace. It's part of what helped me that and being really sick. Uh, actually urged me to. <laughs> but see, I could have been just really sick and not trusted that there was something in my body to tell me something. I think that's how most people experience, especially chronic and devastating illness, is that the illness itself, which for very good reason, feels like nothing more than a, a betrayal in this horrible thing that's hurting us. Something about being a first-generation college student and not being encumbered by too much higher education that helped me to trust my experience. And that was David Bilbrey and Melissa Pete. Find an archive of David's podcasts and other work at ecothinkit.com. Melissa's ongoing research, exploration, and workshops with the Generative Knowledge Institute are at generativeknowledge.com. Though I cannot speak directly of Melissa's research and methods, as I do not know them well enough, I am reminded of two points from my teacher training and studying environmental education, the role of a teacher, and how to approach education holistically. Both my teacher training and environmental ed studies delved into what a teacher does, with the core thought being that teachers do not impart knowledge, you don't just plug information into someone's head, but rather act to draw out a student's love, desire, and interests, so they can be self-directed, while the instructor provides the resources needed for the pupil to deepen their own understanding. Yes, there is a base amount of knowledge needed before we can self-direct, and my impression of this through reading various literature and working with children is the elementary school years provide the core skills of reading, writing, maths, and communication that students can then build on through guided rather than dictated activities. Once this core curriculum is understood, the role of the teacher moving forward is as a guide on the side rather 
than a sage on the stage. When it comes to a holistic approach to education, especially at the elementary and secondary levels, there are two authors whose works I continue to come back to from the environmental education field that influence my thoughts on what we need to do as parents, concerned citizens, and educators to create meaningful, holistic programs, similar to what David Bilbrey and Melissa Peet saw as missing in much of our current educational system. The first is David Sobel, who stresses the importance of play and exploration, particularly for young children. The other, David Orr, writes about the overall views on what education should be and the kinds of reforms necessary to get us there. Together, the two of them provide a broad picture of environmental education from the individual level up to what we can be enacting with policy. So if you'd like to get started with understanding more about these authors, I recommend two books from David Sobel, Beyond Ecophobia and Place-Based Education. From David Orr, there's nothing better than Earth and Mind, which is probably his most widely read and seminal works, though if you do pick up a copy of that, look for the 10th anniversary edition. Though ostensibly about the natural world, once you begin to learn more about the entire environmental education field, you realize that the real focus is on holistic, life-changing experiences. These authors, combined with trusting our own interests and knowledge, hold the potential for lasting and systemic change that makes greater understanding and care for the world, ourselves, and each other possible. To encourage you to read the works of David Orr and David Sobel, I'll be doing a giveaway for these titles at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. That drawing starts on April 28th and runs through at least May 8th. So head on over there, leave a comment, and be entered today. If you have thoughts on this conversation or follow-up questions for Melissa, call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, explore your embodied knowledge while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.